Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, we are wrapping up our series on the great essays and the great essayists. I'm going to be talking about what makes for a great essay, but I'm also going to be giving an example of a contemporary essay, which is as good as anything I've talked about so far. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, home of great essays and great essayists. If you would like to subscribe to get every current issue, but also the LRB's peerless archive, just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. One of the questions that I've been asked quite a lot while I've been doing this series about great essays is are there any essays that are written now in the 2020s that are as good as the ones that I've been talking about in this series through the centuries? And the answer is yes, definitely. There are more great essays being written now than at any point in history, partly because there just are so many outlets for it. It is a form of writing that is everywhere. There are the traditional outlets that have been around for a long time, the great magazines, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the London Review of Books, but also so many new platforms in which this is the dominant style of writing. Short, medium form, non-fiction, an argument, but often an argument based on personal reflection or personal experience. The blog post is, in many of its guises, another name for essay writing. So yes, there are great essays everywhere. In fact, it's almost impossible to pick. I have tried to pick one, and I'm going to talk about one today, an essay written in 2020. But I've also found myself thinking about something else in relation to this series. And maybe slightly bizarrely, it's been provoked by something that Sam Bankman-Fried said. So Sam Bankman-Fried, the, I think as he's now known, the disgraced crypto king, currently awaiting sentencing for his conviction for massive fraud. Also the subject of a recent book by Michael Lewis, a profile of him, his lifestyle, but also the way he thinks. And one of the things that's come out of that profile is that Sam Bankman-Fried is no fan of Shakespeare. He thinks Shakespeare is massively overrated. He just doesn't like him. He's not alone in that. Tolstoy thought Shakespeare was overrated. But he has a very 21st century Silicon Valley take on this, which is he thinks it's statistically vanishingly unlikely that the greatest writer of all, the person who seems to be accepted by everyone as the number one writer in history, would have come from a period where almost nobody was a writer. And when there were very few people with the opportunity to write, as Virginia Woolf said in A Room of One's Own, excluding all women at that time, but also almost all men, almost all men and women couldn't write, and the very few who could write, almost none of them had outlets for it. And if we're talking about playwriting in the English language, Shakespeare's right at the start of the story. So he's not maybe the very first, but he's almost the very first. Right at the beginning, you get the best writer. And then afterwards, you get many, many more. And the the chart of the number of writers just fans out from hundreds to thousands to millions of people over the centuries who have written, is it really probable that the best one would be almost the first one? There's a more acute version of that, I think, that question in relation to essay writing, because the very first one is the person I started this series with, Montaigne. He more or less invented the form. And he's also the best. I've taken it for granted that he's the best. It's a kind of conventional wisdom that he's the best, because he is the best. Of all the essays that I've read for this series, and I've read a lot, and I've thought a lot about them, I still find myself going back to Montaigne as just the exemplar of this kind of writing. And Sam Bankman-Fried has a point, and it's made me think, 
is this just not a sort of trick of the light? Just because he's the first doesn't mean he's the best. Just because he invented the form, it seems unlikely that the person who invented it would also be the person who did it better than any of all the other people who came after, including, I've talked about them, many of the greatest writers of all who have refined the form and experimented with the form. Does it really still reach its pinnacle with the person who originated it? So I think the answer is yes and no. I think there is a reason why it is still possible to say yes. And this, without wanting to be too pretentious, applies to Shakespeare a bit as well. Writing right at the start of a genre more or less gives the writer permission to stand in for everyone else. So what Shakespeare has, what Montaigne has, is when you read them, a feeling like they are representing the human condition and all things pass through them. And that's only really possible if you're surrounded more or less by silence. So if you're trying to be a playwright in the 21st century, and I think this is probably particularly true of novels, where there are just hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of other people doing the same thing, it's impossible, it's completely implausible to be the person who stands in for the human condition because there are thousands of other people doing that. What gives you the right to be the one person who speaks for everyone? You can only be Shakespeare at a time where you are surrounded more or less by silence. And therefore, that ambition to try and represent everything in your writing doesn't seem ridiculous. Whereas now it does. Any novel that aspires to be war and peace in the 21st century doesn't really make sense because you can't be war and peace. And even when war and peace appeared, there were lots of novels, but there weren't. It wasn't a world that was drowning in novels. Or to be Pride and Prejudice, when there really weren't that many novels, that requires space around it in which the ambition to be a kind of total account is not laughable. And Montaigne had that with the essay. He was able to write about himself as the first person who had done it in this way, such that even some of his more trivial thoughts have a profundity to them because they are unique in a world of silence. But I think the difference between the essay and, say, the aspiration to be Tolstoy or Shakespeare in the 21st century. The reason it is not absurd to aspire to be Montaigne in the 21st century is that the essay is a particular form which doesn't aspire to be universal. It's not like a play which is a cacophony of voices or a novel. It's not like War and Peace or Middlemarch where you, you see the whole world laid out before you, even if it's only one part of the world, all different aspects of it, or as many as possible are represented. In an essay, it is a personal point of view. It is, as I said in the first episode in this series, it's a single human being following a train of thought, and it might not even be a particularly long journey from A to B. It's a shift in perspective, in one person's perspective, that opens up a world. So the big picture comes out of the small picture, which means that the fact that thousands of other people are doing it doesn't make your ambition in one story in one perspective, in one shift in how you see the world, to shift the view of the world. That isn't ridiculous. And many great essays written now are as great as anything that's been written before because they have that quality to them. It is also true that Montaigne is blamed by some people for the volume of not such good essay-style writing that the world is drowning in at the moment the abundance of blog posts and personal reflections, everyone in a sense, maybe not everyone has a novel inside them, but everyone has a blog inside them. And everyone claiming that their little shift of perspective is a way of seeing the world in a new light. There have been things written relatively recently saying we're living in Montaigne's world and that's not a good thing because it's given everyone permission to think that their smallest thoughts are somehow of universal interest and clearly that's not true. But having said all of that, the very best contemporary essay writing exactly has that quality, I think, that the best essays I've been talking about in this series have, which is their ability to see the big in the small and the small in the big. And not even like short stories. Short stories, great short stories are extraordinary things, but they are almost always vignettes of some larger story. Whereas an essay doesn't have to be a vignette of a large argument. It can be the whole argument. You can have an argument in a paragraph. You can move the perspective from A to B 
in two sentences. Very short essays can contain all that they need to contain to shift someone's point of view. And yet, in an essay, the shortness of the form doesn't limit its ambition to say something bigger because the big is in the small and the small is in the big. And many of the essays I've talked about, I think, have that quality. They start with something very personal, something that may only really make sense for the person writing it, and they use it to reveal a whole world. So Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own starts with an account of her having lunch and dinner in Cambridge Oxford Colleges. And it's pretty trivial. It's kind of about the quality of the soup. And it's also very particular to her. There, there wouldn't be many people who were in her position to have those lunches and dinners in, in both a men's man's college and a women's college. Not least because as a woman, she's uniquely placed to see the two perspectives. It's really parochial. It's very Oxbridge-y. It describes a, a walk to and from the British Museum. And yet out of that, she describes a whole world. She opens that up without ever leaving that personal perspective behind. At no point in that essay do you step outside of her personal journey. You're always with her moving through the argument. And you've started in the most parochial possible place, Oxbridge. And yet out of that, there is an account of the human condition. Orwell's The Lion and the Unicorn begins, I haven't got it in front of me, so it's probably a slight paraphrase, but it begins with him saying, as I write this, highly civilized people are flying overhead trying to kill me. It starts in a particular place and moment in time, and it's about him. It's incredibly solipsistic. It's sort of almost parodically solipsistic because they're not trying to kill him. The, the people who are flying overhead don't know it's George Orwell sitting down there. And yet out of that, really intimate opening sentence you get the two sides of what he's saying there both the intimacy of it and the vast impersonal forces that he's describing and from that beginning you get an account of the whole world and i think that's also true of the essay i'm going to be talking about today the reason i've chosen it is i think it is a brilliant version of what the best essay writing does which is it plays around with a sense of scale it is about the most intimate things it's extraordinarily pared down in its focus and it uses the smallest possible perspective to open up a world and then within that world that it opens up it brings the reader back to the most intimate personal perspective and it does the two things throughout, it's not a particularly long essay, throughout a few thousand words. I want to say one more thing before I talk about that essay itself. The other thing it reminds me of, and this might sound ridiculous, but it, like many of the best essays, sometimes they remind me of certain kinds of films that are brilliant at using a visual medium to reveal the small in the large and the large in the small and to invert a sense of scale so you see a world in something small and then within that world you see something very small from a new perspective. So one example of that, it's not going to be everyone's favourite film, but it is one of my favourite films, is Titanic by James Cameron, a brilliant film. And one of the things that I love about it is he has a genius for conveying the size of the ship it is the whole world. At the beginning of that film, you get the shot of the Titanic, and it's the biggest thing you've ever seen. And you become aware that within this ship, all human life is there. In the cliched sense, the three classes, first class, second class, third class, the different worlds, the Leonardo DiCaprio character who moves between the worlds and then takes Kate Winslet down to the underworld. Within even first class, all of the different microcosms of human society are there. And then the ship hits the iceberg. And suddenly, this thing, which was the whole world, is just trivially small. It's tiny. It's not just tiny relative to the iceberg that destroys it. But there is a shot where Cameron pulls out, and you just see the Titanic in the middle of the vast, empty ocean. And you realize it means nothing. All of this means nothing. It is nothing relative to the natural world. And then you zoom back in to the chaos of the sinking ship and all of the human drama of it. Or if Titanic is too soppy for you, 
uh, the least soppy film I've ever seen, but also a masterpiece, is Mel Gibson's Apocalypto, not a film for everyone, extraordinarily violent film, about the dying years of Mayan civilization in Central America. I think it's the early 16th century. It's the story of a young man in his battle to escape from people who are trying to capture him and his family and to take them to be used as human sacrifice. You get the intimacy of his world, and then he's dragged out of that world into the chaos and the horror of the city, which to him is this whole new terrifying universe in which human beings are being sacrificed. He escapes from that, and then the bulk of the film is him being chased, and it's just a battle between two people, and it's incredibly intimate and terrifying but it is all about two human beings and their conflict, the, the chase, is is everything. And plot spoiler, he finally escapes. And the very final shot of the film is him on the beach looking up and seeing for the first time in his life the Spanish galleons that have arrived, which are going to destroy the civilization from which he has just tried to escape. And this conflict, which had pared down to two people, and felt like the whole world is then revealed in the final shot to mean nothing because what is coming is going to render all of that irrelevant. And suddenly there is another world outside of this world which makes this world look completely different. And yet everything that you have just seen remains imprinted on your memory as unforgettable. Unforgettable and rendered meaningless by the last shot. The essay that I'm going to talk about today is one that was published in The New Yorker in 2020, September 2020. It's by a Chinese-American writer, Jia Yang Fan, and it's called How My Mother and I Became Chinese Propaganda. One of the qualities that this essay has, which it shares with, for instance, George Orwell's The Lion and the Unicorn, is it has an incredibly arresting opening sentence, which actually is reminiscent of the opening sentence of The Lion and the Unicorn. So I'm just going to read the very beginning of this essay. So it starts like this. The messages wishing me a gruesome death arrive slowly at first, and then all at once. I am condemned to be burned, raped, tortured. Some include a video of joyful dancing at a funeral, with fists pounding on a wooden casket. The hardest ones to read take aim at my mother. So this is an essay about that experience of discovering herself, Fan and her mother, being the targets of a brutal online assault. But actually, most of the essay is not about that. And in a way, the essay is a, it's, it's got the arc of a classic narrative in that it starts there, and then it takes the whole essay to get to the explanation of how this came about. And the explanation goes through a whole series of other themes, which are actually what the essay is about. So to start with, this is an essay about exile. It's the story of Fan and her mother who left China in 1992 to come to the United States because Fan's father, her mother's husband, had gone earlier, I think six years earlier, as one of the early intake of a new program that allowed Chinese students this is the 1980s, where this was pretty rare, allowed Chinese students to go and study in the United States. So he gets selected to study biology at, at Yale, in New Haven, Connecticut. He goes, it takes six years for his wife and daughter to be able to join him. And it's, it's obviously an enormous wrench. And they are quite a well-connected family in China, including they have heritage back to the early days of the, the Maoist revolution. So they are, although she doesn't quite put it like this, they have a kind of status within communist party circles and they have to give all of that up and that makes it not just a wrench to leave but also it's seen as an act of betrayal of a sort but they go to the united states to be to be with the the husband the father and then when they get there they discover that they are about to be themselves betrayed because he has been having an affair and after a year and a bit he leaves them he abandons them so they abandon China, and then he abandons them, leaving them in Connecticut completely alone and powerless. They, they are friendless. And Fan has described in the essay 
the way in which the life that they left behind in China was an intimate network of relations and relationships built around status, but also built around an understanding of where everyone belonged and where they fitted. And to be in America alone is to have none of that. It is to be cast adrift on a vast and empty sea. And her mother, who is a proud woman and very status conscious, is determined not to reveal their terrible weakness. She's a highly educated woman, but she has to take a job as a cleaner. And she calculates that the best chance for her daughter is to find the place where her daughter would get access to the best education. And so they move to Greenwich, Connecticut, which is probably one of the richest and whitest places on earth. This is in the mid-1990s. She works as a cleaner. She cleans in big, fancy, rich houses. She lives in, she and her daughter live in cleaning quarters in very cramped conditions. They become completely dependent on each other. But she moves there so that her daughter could get access to good public schooling with the kids of these, these rich families, very white, Chinese girl in this white community, so that she has the best chance of getting out and getting out from this trap, the trap that they found themselves in, and in a way of, of assimilating, of becoming someone within American society who has the status to navigate, to negotiate the business of being alive, which for her mother requires the negotiation of, the deployment of status. And education, she concludes, is the route to that in the United States. But it's an incredible strain on both of them. It's a strain on, on Fan, on the daughter, because she has to, as she says, live a double life. So at home, in this incredibly intimate, claustrophobic relationship with her mother, they are everything to each other. They have nothing else. She is, as she says, the good Confucian daughter. And then in her school life, she's you know among the waspy princesses, and she has to fit in with them too. And the strain is terrible for her to try and combine those two sides of herself in the same person. But there's also almost a paradox to the whole project that her mother is determined not to reveal their weakness, not to re reveal their vulnerability. Everything for her mother is about keeping the barrier intact so that people can't see how desperate they are in order that her daughter might ultimately be able to lead a life where she doesn't have to hide, where she can be in this world, the world of, you know, I suppose, wealthy Americans, without feeling there is a shameful secret. So everything is hidden in the hope that ultimately the result will be there is no need to hide shame and secrecy in that way. It doesn't really make sense. They're both aware it doesn't make sense. And the strain, including the strain on their relationship, is intense. But that's how they live until the next thing happens, which is that her mother, still relatively young, gets a diagnosis of ALS, that cruelest form of motor neurone disease, ultimately fatal, used to be known in the United States as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's such a cruel disease because it slowly imprisons the sufferer in their own body. Slowly but relentlessly, bodily function shuts down, including ultimately leading to paralysis. The mind is entirely intact. The person who is suffering this knows exactly what's going on, and there is no mental impairment. But the physical impairment is a kind of imprisonment. And it creates the condition that Fan's mother is most terrified of, which is dependency. Her, she has been living her life in order to try and establish even a tiny island of independence, of non-dependence, probably one should say, in this American, brutal American world in which she is at the, the mercy of strangers. And now, having fought relentlessly for that, this disease robs her of that because she is now once again completely at the mercy of strangers, including the kindness of strangers and of her own daughter. She becomes completely dependent on her daughter, on her daughter to organize the care that she needs to pay for it. But also she becomes completely dependent on the carers. And it's you know, not just physically, but psychologically profoundly painful for her. And she still tries to preserve within that her sense of her own dignity and status. And some of the humor in this essay is Fan's mother is pretty scathing about her carers. The, the, the way she preserves her own identity 
is to mock them. But of course, you don't really want to mock the people on whom you are completely reliant for care in case they find out. And this is this becomes total reliance. She needs people with her all the time to turn her in her bed to save her from bed sores, to use the ventilator to clear out her lungs of the fluid that will build up there and will kill her if they don't do it. It is total dependence. And then the next thing happens, which is the COVID pandemic. And then Fan's mother, who's in a care facility, like people across America, across the world, is in this terrifying situation where she is trapped. She is now trapped in her body. And also now she's in a care facility where new rules from nowhere suddenly spring up, which are going to make it very, very difficult for her carers to come and go and to be able to look after her. She is now at the mercy of forces that it seems even her daughter, who is relentless and tenacious in trying to keep her mother alive and has succeeded to this point in prolonging her mother's life expectancy beyond the prognosis she was given. She was given five years. I think we're now eight years in. But in the pandemic, given her mother's physical vulnerability, the need for care that she has, the fact that COVID will almost certainly kill her, and the knowledge that care homes are the most dangerous places to be. And you know, this is already, this is March, April 2020. It's already becoming clear that one of the most frightening aspects of this disease is when it gets hold of a care home, particularly a care home which is itself now cut off from the world. It can be a death sentence. So there's a whole nother level of fear here and also of trappedness to negotiate. Fan writes about halfway through the essay, my mother was now incarcerated in a body that was confined in a sealed facility, which was trapped inside a lockdown city. You have the ultimate reduction of the scene of the drama to the most intimate and narrow point inside a body, inside a care facility, inside a city, inside a nation, inside a world. Each step you take down is another level of incarceration, or you could say each step you take up from the body to the to the building, to the city, and so on. Everything, and for most of this essay, this is the theme of it, everything keeps getting shrunken back. It starts with mother and daughter abandoned in America, trapped in this relationship in which they are completely dependent on each other. And here they are, the daughter having, in a sense, got out, because the daughter is now, among other things, a writer for The New Yorker once again, completely locked together in a relationship of codependence. The mother ultimately totally dependent on the daughter, but the daughter's awareness of that making her completely dependent on her mother's care for her own well-being. And yet out of this, a world opens up. Out of this moment of complete paring down, there is a revelation of the world. So a whole series of things are revealed out of this moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the things that is revealed is that in America... In order to secure care for her mother, Fan has to assert her status in the sense that she has to do what her mother, as she describes it, was very adept at doing back in China before she left, which is trading on personal relationships, the thing that was the great deprivation for her mother. And she describes her mother as having been someone who had a ruthless pragmatism about this the great deprivation in America, she couldn't do it. She had none of those relationships to trade on, but her daughter does now have them. 
because her daughter is a well-known writer. The New Yorker has status. In fact, she says in the essay, in an essay in the New Yorker, that the fact that she writes for the New Yorker is one of the things that gave her access to people who could help her mother. It is still a world in which the trading of status and favours, she accesses food for the care facility in the hope that the care facility will give her mother a special break and special permission for the kind of care that the rules seem to preclude. She does the thing that her mother used to do back in China. America is not so different after all. The world is still the world. The other thing that is revealed at the moment, almost the pure moment of intimacy, which is when Fan takes a photograph of her mother at her lowest point, a photograph that captures her mother's illness, vulnerability, desperation. She photographs her mother looking desperately, desperately ill. And she puts it on Twitter because this is now the 2020s. And the way to access the kindness of strangers is to take the very personal and to make it public. As Fan herself says in this essay, what she does is she takes the moment of shame, because this for her mother would be the ultimate shame. Her vulnerability, her total vulnerability, revealed to the world. She doesn't tell her mother she's doing this. To take her mother's vulnerability, the thing that her mother has spent her whole life trying to conceal from the world because she believes this is the way to give her daughter the best chance of getting out. She takes the thing her mother has tried to conceal and she reveals it to everyone because she thinks this is the way to get people's attention in a world of sort of competitive revelation, in, in, in Montaigne's world, in a, or rather not Montaigne's world, in the world that Montaigne allowed to be created in the 21st century where everyone has got a story to tell and everyone's point of view is competing to be heard. A photograph of real vulnerability, as seen from one perspective or as seen from her mother's perspective, of deep shame triggers an empathetic response. And it works. That photograph gets the attention of a local politician and it builds up a, a momentum behind it so that her mother's condition, her care is improved. She gets access to the things that she needs because Fan uses her ability to communicate to many people on Twitter as a well-known writer to trigger a response that in a way, I don't think she more or less says this, would kill her mother it would her mother would die of the shame and she uses it to save her mother but and here's the twist this is the 21st century and you can't project an image like that on twitter take it from the most intimate setting and put it out into the world and still boundary it you can't send it out as far as you need to send it say new york but not allow it to go further and the image reaches china and in china it has the diametrically opposite effect of the effect that it has in the United States. In the United States, it triggers empathy. And in China, it triggers contempt, hatred, fury, rage, and death threats. Because in China, fan status now is very different. So in America, she's a well-known New Yorker writer. In China, she is the daughter of a woman who abandoned China to follow her husband a woman who had been well-connected in communist party circles, so that's the greater betrayal. And then the daughter has become Americanized. She has assimilated. She's gone to an American school, an American college. She's working for a big American magazine. And she is writing about China as a Chinese-American. And she is not writing sympathetically about China from the perspective of Chinese nationalists in that she has just written some critical pieces about China and Hong Kong, reporting on the, the protests in Hong Kong and the... the brutality of the Chinese crackdown. And she's known in China as someone who is a critic, not a not an out-and-out -out critic, but a critic of the regime. And now suddenly here she is revealing a photograph of the most intimate moment in her and her mother's life, her mother's ultimate weakness and desperation. And the response in China is of people to be, as she says at the start of the essay, gleeful about her and her mother's plight, and to wish death on her mother. That if this is the photograph of her mother's physical vulnerability because she's at the brink of death, 
in America, the response is to try and help. In China, the response is to wish for the acceleration of that death because these people are traitors. They abandoned their country. The daughter is now writing about China as though she were an American. And the cruelty on top of the cruelty is the, the jibe that comes from China is what do you expect? You go to America, but they're racists in America. We know they're racists. You're Chinese people in America. They're not going to care for you. Of course, your mother is dying. Of course, she's not getting the care she deserves. In China, she would be being cared for. But in America, a Chinese woman is just going to be tossed out on the scrap heap because this is a brutal, ruthless, racist society. You get what you deserve. What did you expect? Of course, this is where you're going to end up. So the thing that is revealed in order to access the thing that is needed also accesses the thing that is beyond her mother's worst nightmare, that back in China, and the reason that after Fan's father abandoned them, they didn't go back home is her mother couldn't face the shame of it, the revelation that the move to America had failed and they were nothing in America. She stuck it out in America because to go home would be too shameful. And now here it is, the story of their shame all over the Chinese internet and being used as a meme and worst of all, being used as a meme in a geopolitical contest, because this is also the COVID pandemic. And this is March, April 2020, when the question was in America, is this the Chinese disease? Trump wants to call it the Chinese disease. It's brought from China. The Chinese are to blame. And here is the story of a Chinese woman in America. And in China, they're saying, and you get what you deserve, because also you are on the side of the people who are blaming us for this. You're in America you are suffering as Americans should suffer. It's not our fault. From the most intimate, micro, microcosmic version of the COVID pandemic, a woman in a bed suffering and a photograph taken by her daughter, to the world of Trumpian geopolitics in not quite one step, but more or less one step, one kind of whoosh. There, isn't, there doesn't need to be an argument explaining how this happens. It just, it gets away from them. And there they are, and we end where we began, on the receiving end of death threats. Something beyond their worst imaginings, and particularly her mother's worst imaginings, is the consequence of the daughter having saved the mother's life. So what is this essay actually about? I think what's so great about it is it's about lots of things. One of the things it's about is that double quality to a lot of the relationships that the micro is the macro and vice versa. So one example that Fan gives, she says this in the essay, is she reflects at a certain point that her relationship with her mother is a bit like what you might call their relationship with their motherland. It's the mother-motherland parallel. The mother is the micro version, the motherland is the macro version. Because she understands, and she understood quite young, that at some point, she didn't know she would save her mother, but at some point she would definitely betray her mother because her mother wanted to give her her best chance in American society, American life, which would mean leaving her mother behind in some sense, or at least the assimilation would take her outside of that Confucian shell in which they had both retreated to protect themselves against you know, the, the brutality of American life. Being a cleaner in Greenwich, Connecticut can't have been much fun. But the daughter, the point of the whole project was to get out of that, but the getting out of that would be experienced by her mother as a betrayal. And it was, and it was at an early age because she describes at one point her mother finding and reading her diary as a teenager and realizing in the diary that the good Confucian daughter is not the whole daughter. There is another part of the daughter who has left all that behind already, is already Americanized in various ways, and it nearly kills her mother. And at the same time, what they discover is that the response that her mother has to her and her inevitable betrayal mirrors the response that the Chinese nationalists have to the abandonment of the motherland, that they, they got away. And in getting away, they betrayed the thing that had nurtured them. And it's unforgivable. The mother and the motherland, it's the ship seen small, the ship seen large. It's the same thing from different perspectives. It's an essay about power and how power works and the parallels, the surprising parallels in a way between power in these two very different societies, the one they left behind and the one they arrived in, because it does so turn on personal relationships. So it emerges in this that 
the personal is the political, or maybe it's that the political is the personal. Something that many people, I think, discovered in the COVID pandemic when governments introduce sweeping, draconian, blanket rules designed to protect everyone, there will be some people for whom those rules are a death sentence, or there will be some people for whom those rules are beyond brutal because they keep them away from their loved ones. They mean that the most important relationships in their lives are severed. They can't be by the deathbed of the people that they love. Funerals, weddings, all of that, are, it's all destroyed for, for the greater good. So some people inevitably will be better off if they can find a way around some of those rules in order to protect the things that are most valuable to them. But in that world, that world of draconian general rulemaking, the only way around is to find personal connections that give you the workaround. You've got to find the person in the hospital, the doctor. You've got to find the local official, the politician, whoever it is. You've got to bend the rules. That's how it works. That was true in communist China. And it was true in lockdown United States America. The personal and the political are intimately connected. And it does turn in part on status. It's one of the cruelties of this. It's one of the injustices of it. That people who have more social capital will be better able to skirt around the rules in the same way that the people who have the most money, to go back to what I talked about in relation to Tanahisi Coates's essay, the rich are better at avoiding tax, you know, because they have the access to the means to avoid. The better off will be better at finding a workaround to allow them to get out from under the rules. And Fan uses that. She uses her, you know, the fact that she has made a success of her life. She uses the status of the New Yorker to find the people who can help. But at the same time, what she discovers is that that kind of politics also leaves you trapped because you are trapped by your status. She has to make a public performance of her mother's plight and then use her position, you know, in some ways trivially powerful because it's nothing by American standards, but there's enough. She's got enough of a foothold to use her position to translate that into a form of access to the things that she needs. But she then gets trapped by having become that person, the person who used that to project to the people that she needed to reach because when it goes beyond those people she finds that she is completely at the mercy of what she describes as a caricature of herself and in the essay she says you know she reads about this person Jia Yang Fan who is being reviled whose you know whose wooden casket is being danced on by the people who are celebrating her mother's death and then looking forward to her death and she thinks that person isn't me you know that that, that person has almost nothing to do with me but of course that is the person that she had to create a public version of herself, a kind of almost caricature of herself to access the resources that she needed. That kind of politics is always double-faced. Personal connections can always also turn on you when the same kind of status is being perceived by the people for whom it is not a mark of why you deserve care, but a mark of why you deserve contempt. It's also an essay about cruelty, and violence. One of the things that Fan describes her mother, who really does sound like a tough person, saying to her when she's at these schools in Greenwich, Connecticut, and you know, is presumably being bullied and mistreated and is on the receiving end of either outright or microaggressive forms of racism, and comes home distressed after a day among the princesses of Greenwich, Connecticut, her mother's mantra to her is, where's your bruise? Like, did they hit you? Did they beat you with sticks? You know, this is not the cultural revolution. Did they come after you and try and destroy you physically? No, these are words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will not bruise you. Unless you can show me the bruise, I'm not interested. It's just words. We are here to protect ourselves and to keep this tiny family unit intact. So unless they are physically attacking you, you just brush it off. It's a pretty hard school, her mother's school. And when they find themselves, when Fan finds herself and her mother under this form of brutal attack, the online swarm version of this, you can say to yourself when you're on the receiving end of a Twitter storm, 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But it's no real consolation. She tries, so she says to herself, and she says she finds some comfort in it. She says, where's your bruise? As she reads these terrible things about her and her mother. And she's able to persuade herself to a certain extent that that they can't touch them because they're across the other side of the world and all they are doing is sharing words or images or memes or whatever it is. But they can't kill them. They can't actually come and kill them. But she also reflects and indeed discovers because she hears from other family members who are still in China. So in leaving China, they also left behind an extended family. And these people are known to be connected to Fan and her mother. And so it has consequences for them too. It's not just the thought of her mother's shame. It's the fact that the attack that is now being directed against her and her mother has repercussions for the wider family, real repercussions, not sticks and stones repercussions as such, but certainly knock-on effects that make their lives harder. It's not just limited to name-calling in a Greenwich, Connecticut schoolyard, because this is the age of the internet, and this is Twitter, and this is limitless. And the terror of this kind of attack, even if it is just name-calling, is the scale of it leaves all of this collateral damage in its wake and the sense of responsibility, and many people have written about this, of the person on the receiving end, that it's not just they are now under attack, but a whole world, a whole life, the people who know them are all seeing this. They are all themselves feeling the shame. They are feeling disgraced by association, all of that. It is a form of violence. It's not sticks and stones violence, but it is violence. It's not just cruelty, and it leaves it leaves its mark. And it doesn't just leave its mark on the person who is at the eye of the storm. It leaves its mark everywhere. It's part of the horror of being alive in the 21st century. And then finally, I think what this essay actually really is about, the heart of it, is that moment where the most intimate thing becomes the most public thing, which is, to me, emblematic of the essay writing as a form, as an art form. That's what it does. It takes the intimate and it opens up a whole world. And then within that opened up world, it allows you to look again at that intimate thing and see it in a different light. And that's what happens here. As Fan says, it is the moment of shame that she decides to make public to save her mother. And in doing so, she brings down on herself and her mother the thing that they have always feared or at least her mother has always feared, which is public revelation and public humiliation. And as she describes it, part of the horror of this is that in China, the trolls start trawling through her mother's history and start writing about and repeating the stories about her mother's life and the humiliation that her mother worked all her life to protect herself from, the story of her disgrace in the United States, her abandonment, becomes public knowledge. The worst thing that could happen happens in order to save her mother. And yet the essay ends with the revelation that nonetheless, that most intimate moment of shame looks different once it's been seen in the light of the worst that could happen. Because her mother ends this by communicating to her daughter that she will survive it. The daughter, Fan, tries to protect her mother, tries to praise that her mother will never see what's being said about her on the internet. But eventually... Helpfully, someone shows it to her. So she does. She gets to see the worst thing that could happen has happened to her, but it doesn't kill her. Eventually, tragically, later on, not in this essay, but in the story of her mother's life, illness is what kills her. But she survives this, and she tells her daughter she will survive it. And the feeling that one gets is that the scale of it is so beyond imagining. You know, it's it's her moment of shame has been caught up in a Trumpian geopolitical war of words. It's so beyond the worst case scenario that it almost trivializes it. It almost reduces it again. It's not as bad as it seems because it's gone so far beyond. There is a point beyond which the scale, the amplification of the shame empties it out of meaning. It's the absurd. It's not the nightmare version. It's the absurd version. It's grotesque. It's monstrous. But it's also ridiculous. And the last words in the essay are, the mother telling the daughter, as the mother more or less has been telling the daughter throughout, though there have been moments where the daughter doubted it, that she would survive. It's an incredible essay. It's not a very easy essay to read. It is pretty claustrophobic. It's it's pretty abrasive. The relationship between mother and daughter is very uncomfortable to read about, partly because it is so intimate, it is unsparing, 
and the focus is on the unsparing intimacy of it. So the essay does not tell you anything about how Fan actually did get out. It doesn't tell you how she wound up at the New Yorker. It doesn't tell you anything about the actual content of her education. It is about that relationship of codependency through its various incarcerations in Connecticut, in her mother's body, under lockdown conditions, the shrinking, shrinking, shrinking of that world, and then the explosion of that world. It is painful to read. Um, it's not, there's nothing comforting about it, actually, not even in the payoff. But it is that thing that a great essay, I think, always has. It's a kind of revelation out of something that almost all readers will not, people can associate the stresses and strains of the COVID pandemic and that weird contest between the intimate and the public, the personal and the political. But the particular conditions of this, including the story of their lives together, is it's unique. It's relatable, but it's not something that people will think, you know, we, we've all had that experience of exile, that kind of abandonment and so on. It is a unique story, and yet it opens up a whole world. And it makes you look at the world a little bit differently. It doesn't, it doesn't explain the whole world. Not all human life is here. In fact, very little human life is here. The, the people who are described are often described in just a throwaway line, a, a caricature, a nickname. It's not trying to give voice to everyone. It's really only trying to give voice to one person, the author, but through that person, another person, the author's mother. The discomfort is part of the revelation because out of the discomfort comes something that feels like it speaks volumes about the world that we live in. And in that respect, it is as good as any of the great essays because it has the unique quality of a great essay. I think Montaigne, if he read this essay, would think the form that he invented is still in pretty damn good shape. You can read How My Mother and I Became Chinese Propaganda by Jiayang Fan on the New Yorker's website. We will tweet the link. Just follow us at PPF Ideas. We're going to do one more episode talking about this essay series because we've had a whole load of questions. Uh, we did one a couple of months ago. We're going to do one more now, and I'll try and answer questions about some of these different writers, thinkers, different essays. And then, starting on Christmas Day, because we now have the package of 12, the 12 essays that run from Montaigne, to Tanahisi Coates. We're going to put them all out as a single series because I'm aware people will have heard some of them and maybe some people, and we're very grateful, will have heard all of them. But many people won't have. And also, if you know people that you think over Christmas would be interested in this series, do please let them know about it. It's a 12-part series for the 12 days of Christmas. Me talking about the greatest essays ever written from Montaigne to Tanahisi Coates. One a day, every day, starting on Christmas Day. Next week, Essays Q&A. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.